You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It will go down as one of the most disturbing and senseless crimes in Texas history. In the early hours of March 1st, 2008, intruders entered the Caffey House in the small town of Alba. They brutally attacked the family as they slept in their beds, shooting and stabbing them over and over again. Then, as though that were not enough, they set the house on fire. But one thing the intruders never expected was that the father, Terry Caffey, survived. He survived multiple gunshot wounds to his head and body and was able to crawl out of the fire and point the finger at his 16-year-old daughter Erin's boyfriend. Within hours, the police had tracked down 19-year-old Charlie Wilkinson and taken him into custody. He was a local boy, considered a relatively good kid. Aren't they always? Everyone in the area was shocked. But even more shocking was what police found when they searched the trailer where they located Charlie. Shell casings, a recently used condom, and Aaron Caffey. Aaron had not died alongside her mother and brothers as her father had feared. So what had happened to her? Was she in the house that night? The victim of a kidnapping? Or had something much more sinister occurred? At first it appeared that Charlie had been so consumed by his infatuation with a pretty young teenager that he had attempted to kill Aaron's family and kidnap her so he could have her all for himself. The state Aaron was in when deputies found her supported that initial theory. She was still in her pajamas. Her blonde hair was tied back in a ponytail. She seemed sweet, guileless, and totally disoriented. They thought she was possibly under the influence of some kind of drug. Was this something Charlie had given her? While Aaron was taken to the hospital to be checked out, the deputies began questioning Charlie, and it wasn't long before he revealed his accomplices. Two other local young adults. Like Charlie, everyone thought of them as just your average kids. But then Charlie dropped a shocking bomb that investigators did not see coming. According to Charlie, The real instigator behind this terrible crime, the mastermind behind these brutal murders, was not Charlie. No, not by a long shot. It was none other than Erin herself. Needless to say, Erin had a completely different story. We'll tell you what she originally claimed happened that night. You'll also hear from Charlie and his accomplices. Who are they? How did these seemingly normal young adults become involved in such a deadly crime, and why? Was Aaron, innocent, 16-year-old, naive, sheltered Aaron 
really the driving force that they claim? Did she have the power to guide them in this way, to overwhelm them in this way? Well, there are several different stories, and we're going to find out which one is true. You're listening to Episode 2 of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love. Mystery and Murder, Analysis by Dr. Phil. podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads go to lips now that's l-i-b-s-y-n ads.com you're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from lips and ads Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Now remember, when deputies first found Erin in the trailer, she appeared confused, totally disoriented, as if she had been drugged. They considered her a victim, and she was taken to the hospital, not the jail. She was taken to the hospital for a sexual assault examination. While Aaron was getting checked out, detectives in the sheriff's office had been questioning Charlie, and the small town began to learn the extent of what had taken place. Once Charlie knew that Terry had survived the attack and had identified him, well, At that point, he just gave it up. He began to talk, and he rolled right away on his beloved girlfriend, Erin. Assistant Attorney General for the state of Texas, Lisa Tanner, explains. While Erin was at the hospital, Charlie was at the sheriff's office being questioned by detectives. Very early, they informed him there had been a surviving victim and that he had been identified as being one of the shooters. He said that this had been Erin's idea and that she had wanted her parents dead. He had suggested that Aaron just run away instead, but Aaron's response to all of this was no, just kill him. According to Charlie, he was reluctant to go through with the crime that night, and it was Aaron who insisted. He said that he warned her that night that anything he did would be on her shoulders, that it was her decision. All of this had come to light within hours of the murders all while Terry Caffey was still fighting for his life. Remember, he had been shot multiple times and was in terrible condition. So as the police were questioning Charlie, Terry was being rushed into surgery, and it was still touch and go. It was very unclear whether he would survive his life-threatening injuries. Meanwhile, while all this is going on at the hospital and at the sheriff's office, The town's volunteer firefighters had struggled all the night through to put out the flames. But by the time daybreak rolled around, the Caffey house had burned down to its foundation. It was just a smoldering heap. But even then, the physical evidence against Charlie appeared pretty damning. Although Charlie was in custody, law enforcement was leery of his statements. At first, they believed he might simply be trying to shift the blame from himself. But the longer they questioned him, 
the more the pieces of that terrible night seemed to fall into place. Eventually, he implicated Charles Wade and Bobby Johnson. Charlie told the officers that he had asked Charles Wade to help him and that he had promised him $2,000 and that Charles Wade was behind on child support, so he agreed to do it. Charlie told officers that Bobby Johnson was just along for the ride. Shortly after Charlie's interview concluded, officers went out to find both Charles Wade and Bobby Johnson. There are two new names in the investigation, Charles Wade and Bobby Johnson. Charlie's hunting buddy, Charles Wade, was 20 years old, and he was Matthew Wade's younger brother. It was Matthew's trailer where investigators found Charlie and later Aaron, that night. Bobby Johnson was Charlie Wade's girlfriend. And like Charlie, there was very little to indicate that either one of them would be capable of murder. Charles had been raised in a Christian home, and he grew up going to church every Sunday. He had married young and was already in the middle of a heated divorce. He and his wife had had a baby together that past September, but a few months after that, the couple had broken up. According to his estranged wife, that's when Charles began to change. He wanted custody of his five-month-old daughter, but needed cash to pay legal fees. In his interview with investigators, Charles repeated that Charlie had told him that Charlie had promised to pay Charles $2,000 to help kill Aaron Caffey's parents. What was especially chilling was what he told them next. He said the night before the killings, the four, Charles, Charlie, Bobby, and Aaron, had met and decided to just go into the house and, quote, take care of business. The other accomplice Charlie named, 18-year-old Bobby Johnson, was Charlie Wade's girlfriend. By all accounts, Bobby was a cheerful, bubbly high school senior who was really well-liked. Bobby had been a good student and her teachers considered her someone who was bright, articulate, had a future. But it seems like all her good intentions went out the window when she fell in love with Charles Wade. At the time, Bobby had been working at the local Dairy Queen. She had been a good employee, a conscientious worker, Someone fun to be around. But when she started dating Charles Wade, everyone began noticing that Bobby didn't seem like herself. Not even close. Much like when Aaron met Charlie. Suddenly, Bobby became increasingly moody. She didn't want to hang out with her friends. She was absent more and more from work. She was skipping school. And what was very unlike the Bobby that everyone had come to know she just didn't seem to care. The deputies quickly picked up Bobby outside work and they pulled Charles over driving Bobby's car. At the sheriff's office that afternoon, Bobby played dumb and claimed she didn't know what the officers were talking about until they told her that Charles and Charlie were in custody. At that point, she just folded. She admitted everything she knew. Charles Wade held out the longest during the interrogation. In an interview with an East Texas news station, Charles' estranged wife said he called her that Saturday, the day of the murders. 
Later that night, she said she had texted him, but he never responded. The next day, she saw his mugshot in the newspaper. When Charles finally did admit what had happened, investigators said that he was almost casual talking about how he had killed the two young boys. I made the offhanded comment a few minutes ago when I said everyone thought Charlie was a good guy. That isn't that almost always the case. And what I meant was when you hear about someone doing some horrific crime and you talk to the neighbors, it is not unusual for them to say, well, he seemed like an okay guy to me. He was kind of quiet, reserved. Oftentimes, you hear that. And I think old sayings get to be old sayings because they're profound. Such things like a stitch in time saves nine. Necessity is the mother of invention, things like that. And one that really jumps out at me here is, you can't judge a book by its cover. People didn't really know Charlie all that well. They just experienced him superficially. So here we have three young adults, all supposedly decent kids, two of them active in the church, raised by Christian families with Christian values, but yet they have admitted to a serious crime. And when you take the words serious crime away, and describe what they actually did, let's think about that. They went in someone's home and shot them in the face, took a sword and hacked the woman in the neck to the point of almost decapitating her, screaming, die, bitch, die, and then shooting the husband in the face and the torso multiple times. This was premeditated. It wasn't like they went into the house, got surprised by the owners, and had to fight their way out. They went in that house with a gun and a sword. They were not confronted. They found these people asleep in bed and shot them and hacked them in their sleep. So this was premeditated and very consciously decided upon. And you can think, okay, that's hard to understand, but was it something that was on impulse? Was this a crime of passion driven by a misguided love? But then you have to understand they walked across the house and up the stairs and sought out two young boys and viciously, cruelly murdered them. And you can say, well, of course, they couldn't leave witnesses behind. These boys were not witnesses. They were upstairs. You can't see through the floor. You can't see downstairs. These boys were upstairs, and had they heard anything, they were hiding. These were not witnesses. So they methodically, purposely, crossed the living area of the house, went up the stairs, and sought these defenseless young children out and murdered them viciously and cruelly. And then, 
the cover-up was to set fire to the house. Killing the boys was not to protect their identity. Burning the house was to cover their identity. Now, the question becomes, these boys went from no known violence to the most horrific, personal, up-close violence that you can imagine. This was not a drive-by. This was up close and personal. They went into the house of people they knew, people they had talked to, people they had broken bread with, people they had looked in the eye, and hacked and shot and burned them to death. Now, something is seriously, seriously wrong when you go from nothing violent, no stair steps, to this level of violence. The question becomes, how did you get there? Well, clearly, there's no moral compass here. There's no boundary here. Discipline is always such that it should be designed to be internalized. When you tell a child, you eat your vegetables before you eat your dessert. You know, you're guiding them, you're disciplining them. Why you do that? Because you hope later in life they'll learn you do what you need to do before you do what you want to do. All discipline is supposed to be instruction. It's supposed to be internalized so people can self-discipline later. Where was the guidance in these boys' lives? Where were the boundaries? What was the opportunity for them to internalize? Had anyone taught them impulse control? Had anyone set boundaries? Had anyone taught them the difference between right and wrong, the value of human life? What you do not do to take someone's life, some innocent person's life. Who had failed to create boundaries that would be recognized by these young men? One that would kill four people for $2,000? One that would kill four people if he thought that would give him access to someone he had been dating for a few months? Are you kidding me? Is life that cheap? Apparently so in these boys' lives. And you have to wonder, think about it from your point of view. How far from normal would you have to go from your current state, your current values, beliefs, and boundaries would you have to go for this to be okay in your mind? And I'm certain the answer to the question is, you can't get there. You're sitting there thinking, Dr. Phil, there is no way, there's nothing you could say, nothing that could happen, nothing that would occur in my life that would make it okay with me to go in someone's house and murder two innocent children, hack a woman in the neck with a sword, and shoot a man in the face and multiple times in his head back. There's no way that I could become so disoriented, so out of touch with morality, that that would be okay with me. That's how far from normal, that's how far from adjusted these people were. Predators live among us. I have said so many times that I think what I was taught growing up, which is you give people the benefit of the doubt, is a higher form of insanity. You do not give people the benefit of the doubt, nor should you be paranoid, nor should you be judgmental. You should gather data. 
And unless and until you have enough data to make an informed decision, an informed judgment about who someone is, you should not expose yourself to that person. Now, in this case, did they have enough data to predict what was going to happen? Sadly, no. No one had enough data. I don't think the parents of Charles Wade or Charlie Wilkinson had enough data. I don't think these parents of Aaron Caffey had enough data. I don't think anyone sat there and said, we're dealing with two potential mass killers here, two unprincipled psychopathic murderers, but we'll just kind of go along and see what happens. I don't think that's what happened at all. I don't think they showed themselves. I think these were wolves in sheep's clothing. And unfortunately, it's very hard to predict. But when you ask the question, who could do this? Who could go from being in Sunday school, married with a child one month, and murdering four innocent people the next? Who could be dating someone's daughter and because there's been a boundary line drawn, just decide to kill everybody and be ignorant enough to think that everybody will just go, oh, I just don't figure he has anything to do with it. I mean, that is both ignorant, naive, and not very sophisticated. So we're talking about people that are functioning at an emotional age way below their chronological age. This is reasoning, problem-solving, and behavior of someone functioning at a very young emotional age without a moral compass and without having been taught boundaries and the value of human life. So if you ask me who does this and how do they get there, that's my answer. Now back to our story. While the suspects were talking, Aaron was at the hospital getting a full medical assessment. At the suggestion of the sheriff's detectives, she was interviewed at the hospital by the chief of police for Raines Independent School District. She was a friendly, approachable woman who was on a first-name basis with most of the high school students. Detectives felt that she was someone whose presence would help make Aaron feel more comfortable. It's important to note at the time, Aaron was still believed to be a victim, a girl who investigators presumed had been kidnapped after the murders. When the chief questioned Aaron, she talked about that night in a quiet, timid, childlike voice. She seemed hesitant and gave very few details of that night. She still seemed confused. She said she had woken up in a house full of smoke and two guys with swords dressed in black had ordered her to get down on the floor. Although she was still unsure how she had gotten to the trailer, she did remember trying to call her friend Charlie and being unable to reach him. Then she drank, quote, some stuff. Her words. Some stuff that was offered to her at the trailer, and she said she could not recall anything after that. According to the chief, she was teary at the start of the interview, but after that she showed very little emotion. When she was asked if she had anything else to say, Aaron whispered, They're coming after me. 
Well, who was coming after her? Well, that was unclear, but before the chief could ask Aaron, she shut down. This is a girl who on the surface seemed scared and lost. After all, for all police knew, she had suffered a terrible trauma. But the officers who were with Aaron that day noticed something big that was not adding up. They would later reflect on the fact that Aaron had not smelled like smoke when they accompanied her to the hospital. That morning, they felt only sorry for this sweet, soft-spoken girl who had just lost her mother and two brothers. The officer stayed with Erin until she was released from the hospital, then offered to go along with her and her grandparents to the intensive care unit at a nearby hospital to check on Terry, Erin's father. But Erin's story was about to start unraveling. Although Charlie, Charles, and Bobby had all been questioned separately, all three of their stories matched. And all three pointed to Aaron as the driving force behind the murders. While Charlie, Charles, and Bobby were still being interrogated at the sheriff's office, Aaron's grandparents were driving her to the hospital where her father Terry had been taken. Escorted by the police, it was just a few minutes into the drive one of the officers got a call on the radio. They were told, do not let Erin go to the hospital to see her father. Arrest her. After Erin's examination at the hospital, she was released to her grandparents. The three of them were driving to the hospital to see Terry. There were officers escorting them. Those officers were radioed that Erin had been implicated so they stopped the car and arrested Aaron right there on the side of the road. When the officers got the call, they were frankly incredulous. The chief pulled her squad car into a parking lot and gestured for Aaron's grandparents to do the same. That's when she informed them that she had been instructed to arrest their granddaughter in connection with the Caffey murders. She requested that Aaron step out of the car. Aaron's grandmother, Virginia Daly, she just became hysterical. She could not believe what was happening, and she demanded Aaron tell her if she had any part of the murders. According to those there, Aaron was also crying, but she did deny any involvement. Nevertheless, the chief followed the instructions, and she was placed in a squad car. Terry had had a successful surgery and was recovering in the hospital when he found out that his own daughter may have been behind the murders of his entire family and tried to have him killed as well. My sister said Aaron was in charge of murder. Any hope that I had for living had just left me. Because Aaron was a juvenile, she could not be interviewed. She was allowed to make a written statement. She said that men with swords dressed in ninja outfits had come into the home and kidnapped her. By the evening of March 1st, all four of those involved were in custody and charged with capital murder. This was a small town. Nothing like this, not even close, had happened here before. Everyone was shocked. And Aaron's story, well, it had more holes in it than you can imagine. It was falling apart and falling apart quick. 
Now, most investigators would admit that taking the word of co-conspirators is not exactly hard evidence. They just can't solely rely on what they say. When people admit to committing crimes, they rarely tell the full story, nor is everything they say the truth. Even during confessions, people try to lessen their own culpability by laying off different behaviors, different motivations, different initiations on other people to make themselves bit players in the drama. Okay, I'll admit I was involved, but I was kind of a ride-along. I was a lesser player. That's often the case. However, in this case, the investigators would say that Charlie, Charles, and Bobby told almost the exact story And yet it was not so exact that it seemed rehearsed. And as I said before, these were not sophisticated players. So it's not like they had each gotten a version of the story. You tell this and it'll be a little different and I'll tell this and it'll be a little different and you tell that and we'll mix it up a little, but it'll have the same thrust. No, no, no. That's a level of sophistication that to this day would not be common to these three. All three would claim that not only had Erin been the driving force behind the murders of her family, but she also had insisted that her mother was physically abusive to her. I want to make it clear. There was no evidence of physical abuse in the Caffey home. Sure, Erin had been raised in a strict religious environment. The family were members of the very conservative Miracle Faith Baptist Church. Terry, He was studying to be a minister, and he worked as a lay minister. Church was the focus of this family. It was the center of their life. It was their social life. It was their family life. It was their occupation. It was their family center. And after an incident in public school where it was alleged that a girl had attempted to kiss Aaron, Penny began homeschooling the children using a Bible-based curriculum. So the kids were a little more isolated, perhaps. But months before the murder, they had returned to public school. They had activities, friends, a very typical normal life. And you have to understand, I'm saying normal for a small-town, conservative, Baptist town in Texas. Not far from Dallas, but also not far from Waco. We're talking about the buckle of the Bible Belt. So normal there is not what you would think about normal in Dallas or Chicago or L.A. or New York. This was a conservative community. I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just describing what it is. Because Aaron was a juvenile, she could not be taken directly to the sheriff's office for questioning. And so that afternoon, she was brought before a justice of the peace. The Texas Ranger who accompanied Aaron to court was surprised when he first saw her. He said that after everything he had heard about the murders, he said he had been picturing a monster, someone who had dreamed up a scheme to murder her family and who had manipulated people into carrying out her plan. I'm not sure what he thought this monster was going to look like. If he thought it was going to be somebody big and intimidating and dark, but what he saw was a tiny, meek, blonde-headed girl who, according to the police, 
couldn't fight her way out of a wet paper bag. The judge informed Aaron of her rights and asked if she would be willing to speak with investigators. She declined, which was her right, and instead she elected to make a written statement. It was very brief. Her handwriting was girlish, and it echoed what she had told the chief in the hospital. Here's exactly what she wrote. I'm going to read it to you, word for word. I woke up in a house full of smoke, and two guys with swords told me to lay face down and don't get up. Then they left the room, and that's when I got the phone and called my friend Charlie. Then the next thing I remember is waking up by the cops in that house, and I don't know who it is or where I am. End of statement. Pretty much the same thing she said before, but it directly contradicts the other three statements of those involved. After Erin finished writing out her statement, she was taken to the juvenile detention center in Greenville. Remember, she's just 16. If she's done what she is accused of doing, that's a very grown-up act. But she's still just 16, so she was taken to juvenile detention center in Greenville, where she was held on charges of capital murder. So less than 24 hours after the murder, Charles Wade, Bobby Johnson, Charlie Wilkinson, and Aaron Caffey were all in custody and all charged with capital murder. Again, you ask in your mind, who could do such a thing, and why would they do it? And one of the things that I attributed to them was a very unsophisticated mindset and a very immature emotional age. That's how you get caught within 24 hours. You have no plan. You have no forethought. You have not run this through your head. What if somebody looks our way? What are we going to say? What are we going to do? How are we going to escape? What is our plan? You are not sophisticated enough. You're not mature enough. You're not cognitively developed enough. And so you get caught, and the first time they ask you a question that makes you uncomfortable, you fold up like a tent in a windstorm. That's exactly what happened here. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. As the police continued to piece together what had happened that night, there was another blow to Aaron's story. The police got the result of Aaron's toxicology report. 
and it showed no drugs in her system. That meant that when the officers had found Aaron in the trailer, even when she talked with them at the hospital, she had been faking confusion, disorientation, memory loss. Aaron's written statement brings up other inconsistencies as well. For example, she claimed to have woken up to the smell of smoke, but the fire was set after all the gunshots. So did she sleep through all those gunshots and the sounds of her brother screaming? And why didn't she smell of smoke at the hospital? If you have ever been around any kind of fire, if you're in close proximity to it at all, it permeates your hair, your skin, your clothes. It's acrid. It just gets all over you. But not Erin. She did not smell of smoke at all. If Erin was the mastermind behind the murders, where exactly was she when they happened? Exactly what role did she play? Since it was Erin's right as a juvenile not to be questioned, the police would have to uncover all the information themselves because Erin at least had the good sense to not be talking. But the other three involved, as I've already said, were talking and talking plenty. Charles told detectives that night that he, Charlie, and Bobby had driven to Aaron's house intending to rob and kill the Caffeys. However, when they pulled up, the Caffeys' dog had barked so much that they decided they needed to leave. But Aaron supposedly had called Charlie on his cell phone and promised to keep the dog quiet when they returned. So the threesome turned around and went back. Listen to what Charles Wade had said to the detectives in his interview. Um, Originally, she was supposed to keep the dog quiet. Okay, she was supposed to keep the dog quiet. Well, she called back around 2 o'clock, right at 2 o'clock and uh, says that she's out that the road would come pick her up and let discuss what we're going to do. And you picked her up, did she have all her clothes with her in the bag of stuff she packed? So at that point, Aaron had somehow kept the dog quiet and had actually called Charlie, Charles, and Bobby and told them to turn their car around and come back for her. Now here are what Charlie and Bobby have to say in their separate interrogations. It was all packed still in the house. Okay, so she gets in the car with you and Charles and Bobby. I tried to talk her to go back inside to get her stuff. Right. So I just go inside, get your stuff, and what little bit of money you have in that box, and you come inside. Okay. And then you can just run away. Everything will be all right that way. Ain't nobody gonna die. I was trying to talk her out of it. Trying to talk her out of what? Changing her mind. Changing her mind from what? Trying to kill her parents. Okay. And this wasn't the first time Aaron had talked about killing her family. According to Charlie, he and Aaron had discussed it a number of times before. The first time was about a month and a half before the murders. That's right, a month and a half before the murders. And you remember in episode one, the line in the sand telling them they could not see each other had only happened three days before the murders. This was a month and a half before the murders. Now true, 
they were putting controls on her. They were trying to make her accountable for all of her time, enforce curfews, etc., etc. So she clearly was feeling some pinch, but they had not put her against the wall saying she could not have any contact with the love of her life. But yet a month and a half before the murders, Charlie said they had talked about it. At that point, Charlie said he told Aaron it wasn't right and to just stick it out at home until she turned 18. Now, if you have an emotional age of 10, 11, 12, two years seems like a lifetime. The next time she brought up the subject, Charlie said he tried to convince her to just run away. But he said that time she was adamant about getting him to kill her family. That was the weekend before the actual murders took place. And if you remember, that was when Aaron's grandfather, Terry's dad, had passed away. So Charlie told investigators that Aaron had called the murders off. But then right after that was when Penny and Terry found out about Charlie's MySpace postings and told Aaron she couldn't see Charlie anymore. So that was when the line was drawn in the sand. That was when it was three days before the murders. That was when she felt the full weight of their discipline, their parenting assertiveness saying, no more. Charlie said that Aaron got angry all over again, and she insisted they finally go through with their plans. According to Charlie, he begged Aaron that if she didn't want to run away with him, then they should just have a baby together. His thinking was that way her parents would have to accept him, but she refused. After the fact, Classmates would say that Aaron had Charlie wrapped around her finger, that she could get him to do anything she wanted him to do. But murder? We're talking here about a 16-year-old controlling a 19-year-old. And we all know there's a big difference between 16 years old and 19 years old. There might not be such a big difference between... Eight years old and 11 years old. Three years is not always just three years, but the difference between 16 and 19, life experience-wise, independence-wise, hormonally, physically, big difference. But here we've got a 16-year-old who's still got stuffed animals on her bed, supposedly controlling a 19-year-old who is out living independently on his own working in the world, taking care of himself. And they say she could get him to do anything she wanted to do, but murder? According to Charlie, Aaron had told them that killing her parents was the only way they could finally be together, which is what he desperately wanted. And when she said it is the only way, she convinced him that was the truth. So how does a 16-year-old girl have such influence and control over a 19-year-old guy that's living on his own and supposedly would be much more worldly. You know, it's the power of love. When you live in a small town and there's not a whole lot to get involved in and be passionate about and you fall in love, 
that can just be all-consuming. It can be all-consuming right in the middle of New York City, but it can certainly be all-consuming for somebody like Charlie, who doesn't have a whole lot else going on in his life. Doesn't have a great career, doesn't have great family relationships, doesn't have a great future lined out, something that he's pursuing and just really excited about. And then here is a really young, attractive girl that has just swept him off his feet. I mean, he thinks he's punching way above his weight here. You know, he's kind of a scruffy ne'er-do-well in town. And then here is this young, cute girl that would be considered a real catch by anybody. And Charlie's got her. And he's going to hang on to her. And whatever he's got to do to do that, whatever he's got to tell her, whatever he's got to agree with, he's in love and he's going to do it. He wants to please her. And we know they had had sex. And at that point, he's all in. And if he believes, truly believes, that these authority figures, her parents, these religious representatives, are going to come in and impose their restrictions and take this away from him, probably the greatest achievement in his life, certainly the greatest achievement relationship-wise, romantic-wise, that he has aspired to, that they're going to take that away from him, he's just not going to let that happen. He has won the prize here. He has the brass ring. He's got the girl that anybody in town would love to go out with. And these people are not going to take it away from him. Now, these four had friends in town. Different walks of life, but they all had friends. And in talking to the friends, nobody could believe what they were hearing about any of the four. One friend who hung out with them all the time, had even talked to them Friday night, was especially shocked saying that, sure, they partied sometimes, but they were never bad. Another friend voiced what a lot of people in town were feeling. They didn't understand how the kids they knew could change that much in an instant. They felt that something sinister, something really evil must have intervened and influenced them to do the horrible things they did because it couldn't have just come from within because that's just not who they were. They knew them. They just weren't capable of this kind of thing. Meanwhile, in juvie, Aaron was being evaluated for the defense by a mental health counselor, and this time she tells a different story. Now she insisted that Charlie had a volatile temper and that he killed her family after she broke up with him and he had now framed her. She told the counselor that Charlie would talk about someone he knew who could hire a hitman. Aaron said that she believed Charlie really did, in fact, hire someone to kill her family. Now, remember the statement she gave before was that she woke up in a house full of smoke 
and there were two guys with swords that told her to lay down and don't get up. And the next thing she remembered was waking up in a trailer, not knowing where she was or how she got there. So the story before was she had been abducted and had tried to call Charlie for help. Now she's saying, no, 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 that's not true. The truth is, Charlie had a really bad temper and said he was going to hire a hitman to kill her family. Those aren't even remotely related. They're not even on the same continuum. This is 180 degrees out of what she was saying before. Before, she's saying, I was calling Charlie for help, and he didn't answer. Now she's saying, no, he's hiring a hitman to kill my family, so why would she be calling him for help? She's totally contradicting herself. Now, this counselor had over 19 years' experience counseling juvenile offenders, and at the time he was assigned to Aaron, he said she seemed totally sincere and genuine, and that he would have put his license on the line that she was telling the truth. Only after learning the details of the criminal investigation did he realize that Aaron had been manipulating him. He continued to visit her at the county jail. But he said what disturbed him most at the end of almost a year of counseling was the realization that he could no more explain why she had wanted her family killed than on the day he had first met her. During their sessions, Aaron refused to say one negative thing about her parents. So after a year of counseling, this counselor had the candor to say she remained a complete mystery to him. And I have to say, my hat's off to this counselor. And you say, that's odd. He got nowhere with her and she manipulated him. So why hats off to this counselor? Because this counselor is being honest that this young girl was a complete mystery. He's not feigning some sort of insight or wizardry about her. He's saying she's manipulative. She's got her guard up. She's not letting anyone in. And I don't know any more about why she did what she did after talking to her for a year than I did day one. That takes courage to acknowledge and is often the case when you're dealing with someone like this. So, yeah, my hat's off to that counselor for his candor and straightforwardness. Aaron's actions were a mystery to her father, Terry, as well. Although he was still alive, he had lost his wife and his two precious sons. His home had burned down. To say he was suffering... To say he had been through trauma, to say his life had been turned wrong side out, would be an understatement. The man was suffering. Six days after the murders, Terry was released from the hospital and he moved in with his sister's family. That, to me, is a miracle. The man had been shot multiple times had completely lost the use of the right side of his body, had crawled 400 yards through a wooded area, losing blood, yet six days after, he's released from the hospital. Excuse me, but that's Texas tough. Once he moved in with his sister 
and he had some time alone and some time to think, that's when what had happened to his family started to sink in. He knew what lie ahead for him. He had to bury his wife and his two sons, and he had a daughter facing murder charges. Grief is one of the hardest things that we ever deal with in our life. It's not a mental illness. It's not depression. It's a whole other thing all unto its own. Everybody grieves differently, but it is always burdensome. If you love and lose, then it's painful. And think about what Terry was having to shoulder at this point. First off, he's incapacitated. He's been shot multiple times. He's lost his wife. And he didn't just lose his wife. He lost her violently. When we rank the stressors that we face in our life, loss of a loved one is at the top of the list. And within that category, sudden loss is at the top of the list. And within that category, violent sudden loss is at the absolute tip top of the list of stressors. Add to that that he had to witness it, and you're now at the absolute edge of the cliff. Add to that that you were also violated yourself, shot, injured, incapacitated. And you've lost not one loved one, but three. And the fourth one is so complexly interwoven that you don't know how to feel. You don't know whether to be angry, disappointed, heartbroken, empathetic. You don't know how to feel about that. And that can be the most painful of all. I was really interested to see things through Terry's eyes at this point. And I had the privilege of talking to him about that time in his life. I got to the point I just couldn't handle the pain anymore. And I wanted to take my life on that very spot where I lost my family. And I remember shaking my fist up towards God and I said, God, why would you take my family? I have a gun in my hand. And out of the corner of my eye, I see a piece of paper flapping in the wind. It was a page out of a novel. And it said, I couldn't understand why you take my family and leave me behind to struggle along without them. The first line is all I could read. My eyes were filled with tears. That one single page came from a book called Blind Sight. I never read the book, but Penny did. I knew this was certainly a message from God. That message was that I was going to be able to go on with life and that there was a purpose. Wow, that's amazing. You believe that was a message from God? I do. I mean, I'd hit rock bottom. I mean, I thought my only solution is just take my life. You know, the pain that I was dealing with, all the depression, the anger, the bitterness, the rage, I just couldn't take it anymore. Had you not seen that page flapping in the breeze, would you be dead now? I believe so. I believe so. Well, as expected, Terry was hurting at many different levels. On the one hand, he seemed to be somewhat in denial and isolation, and I'm not sure that was totally dysfunctional. 
Because I think if he admitted everything into his consciousness, if he took on the full weight and gravity of everything that had happened, it just might well overwhelm his coping energies. I think he was taking this in. I think he was handling this, digesting this at whatever pace, whatever rate that he could. And this is a process. And I knew after talking to him that he was going to be at this for a good while. Uh, Terry did make a recovery. He told me he took that piece of paper with him and framed it so he would always have it. And he did something else. He went to visit Aaron in prison. Now, think about this. The emotional confusion that you would feel because here's someone that you have loved, that you have protected, that you have raised from an infant, your own flesh and blood. And also, it's the only family you have left. It's just you and her. That's all there is. And so, of course, you have this connection. But at the same time, She's the reason she's the only one you have left because she killed all the rest of them. So you're walking in to see her and that paternal protection starts to bubble up. But at the same time, you just have got to want to scream, what in the world are you thinking? How could you do this? You tried to murder me. You wanted me dead. You had your mother killed, your little brothers. They had nothing to do with it. On the one hand, you just want to shake her and scream. And on the other hand, you're thinking she's so misguided that she needs someone to be there for her. So when Terry does go to see Aaron, she tells him yet a third version of what had happened that night. The first version, two guys with swords get on the floor. Next thing she knows, she's disoriented and doesn't know how she got into this trailer. Story number two, Charlie has a violent temper. She believes he hired a hitman to kill her family. Here's version number three. Erin admitted to her father that she and Charlie had planned to run away. She also told him that Charlie knew someone who could kill her parents for money, but that Aaron wanted to think about it because there was, quote, too much going on. Remember I said that people will make a confession, and then they, it's what we call undoing. They will tell you, yes, I was involved. No, I wasn't. Yes, I did know what was going on. Yes, I was involved, but only sort of. They try to trivialize and confess at the same time. They try to contextualize and minimize their involvement and manipulate the situation. And if you let them talk long enough, they'll wind up being a victim. And here she is facing her father, who is the ultimate accountability because she tried to have him killed and did have his entire family killed. So she's going to say, okay, Here's the deal. We did talk about running away, but 
I was backing out of this whole thing because there was just too much going on. I mean, you know, your your father had died, grand, grandpa had died. I was just trying to back out of all of this. So, yes, there was something going on. I was seeing him behind your back. I, it was bad, and I probably allowed this to happen. If I hadn't done that, maybe this wouldn't have happened. But in this version of Aaron's story, she tells her father that she and Charlie went back and forth about running away and that they drove around drinking and trying to decide what to do. So again, see, we're going to admit some irrelevant details. It's, it's sort of like, okay, I'm going to give you this one because I'm deflecting from that one. I'm going to admit some things that buy me credibility. I'm going to give you a modified mea culpa. I'm going to tell you some bad things I did. And you're going to be thinking, well, if she's lying, she wouldn't be admitting that. And I'm going to get you looking over here at the fact that I'm admitting that I was driving around drinking your 16-year-old Christian daughter of you, the lay preacher studying to be a minister, was driving around behind your back with an older boy drinking, trying to decide what to do. Ultimately, Aaron said she did decide she wanted to go with Charlie, and he said he would sneak back into the house to get the bag she had packed. But when they got back to the house, Charles Wade said he had come to kill, and he wanted the money Charlie had promised him. So Charles and Charlie, the boyfriend, started arguing, and Aaron got tired of listening to them and told them, just do it. Again, think of the emotional age here. We're going to justify this by saying, oh, I got so tired of hearing them argue. Just, okay, just go ahead and kill my family. Just do it. Quit arguing. Just do it. Think about that. Erin is telling her dad that she gave the okay to murder him and the entire family because she was frustrated at hearing them argue. So she's saying, I didn't do it. They did it. And I said, just do it out of frustration because they were just arguing so much. I just couldn't take it anymore. And here's your victim. I was a victim. I was in the crossfire between these two. I couldn't take it anymore. So in frustration, I just said, do it. Now, at that point, Terry, who I know and have talked to and can tell you, does not suffer from a compromised emotional age is a fully functioning, intelligent, emotionally developed adult had to go into emotional shock at this point. Did I just hear what I just heard? Did she just tell me that she gave the okay to have me and the family murdered? At that point, he had to be thinking, who have I raised here? Seriously, did I raise a daughter that would so casually say, just just go in there and kill them all. As a father, forget about Dr. Phil, as a father, I can tell you that had to be the hardest thing to wrap his head around that he had heard come out of her mouth in 16 years. Just to be clear, Terry said that he asked Aaron if she knew they were going to murder her family, and she nodded. She couldn't even admit it out loud, but she had just said, she told him, just do it. Let's be clear here. She nodded yes. And again, she wants to sort of own this. 
She's not going to say it out loud. She's just going to give the nod. So what really happened that night? We've heard from Terry, but he was a victim. He only knew what he witnessed from his point of view, which was catching a bullet in the face and going face down when it knocked him off the bed and then watching his wife get hacked to death. We've heard from Aaron, who's told three different stories. One, she was abducted. Two, her boyfriend hired a hitman. Three, Charlie and his friend got to arguing, and so she just said, go do it. So what's the real story? Here's what we know so far. After the Caffey's dog stopped barking, the threesome, Charlie, Charles Waite, and Bobby, the young girl, picked Aaron up at the end of the parents' driveway and rode around for a while talking about what to do. That, Aaron agrees with, at least in one of her stories. But we have the first-hand accounts of the three others who were there that night. You've already heard Charlie tell the detectives that while they were driving around in the car, he asked Aaron several times to just run away. You don't have to kill anybody. Nobody has to die. Just run away. But she was emphatic that she wanted her parents dead. So finally, the group turned back towards the cafe home and parked down the road. It was agreed that Charlie would kill Aaron's parents and Charles Wade would take care of the two boys so no witnesses would be left behind. I think sometimes the English language really fails us. You have to imagine this scene. We have these four people in this car. They're doing a division of labor, a division of murder labor. So, okay, Charlie, you're going to go into parents' bedroom and kill the two of them. I'm going to go upstairs and kill the children. That's a conversation that takes place with four people in the car. You'd have to think at least one out of four people would raise their hand and say, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? Have we gone crazy? You would think at least one person would have the good sense to say, hey, guys, come on. Let's go to the pancake house and think about this. Come on. Let's take a breath here. In his interrogation, Charlie told the investigators about his decision to follow through on Aaron's wishes. Here's a quote. I joined the Army to do whatever needed to be done without thinking. As for Aaron's parents, he said... I intended to kill them because I thought I was in love. Now, you remember I said earlier, here's a guy that's got a pretty dead-end looking life. He hadn't got a whole lot going for him at the time. He hadn't got a whole lot going on. Not a lot happening in that small town. It's not happening there. It's not headed that way. But he's in love with the beauty queen. He's in love with the prize egg. And it makes perfect sense to this 19-year-old functioning at an emotional age of about 12 to say, I'll kill for love. Without thinking, 
is anybody going to question this after the fact? Has he maybe told people at the church that they've banned me from seeing his daughter, and the next thing you know, they're dead and I'm around? He doesn't think that through. It's just, I thought I was in love, so I was going to go kill him. Now, according to Charlie, Aaron and Bobby had stayed behind in the car while he and Charles went inside. Apparently, this is men's work, and chivalry is not dead. We're going to leave them behind. The men will go in and do the killing. It's just bizarre. They entered through the front door. Why? Because Aaron had left it open for them. And they were armed with a 22 caliber pistol and samurai swords. Charlie crept into Terry and Penny's first floor bedroom and fired at them until his gun jammed. Then he handed the gun to Charles, who fixed the 22 and fired two more shots. That's how methodical they were. Fired until it jammed, then stood there, fixed it, and continued firing. After that, they left the room, but then Charlie came back and cut Penny's throat because he wanted to make sure she was dead. Now, apparently the sound of gunfire must have aroused Bubba and Tyler. Gunfire will do that in your home who called out for their parents and then locked themselves in Aaron's room. Remember, they said they didn't want to leave any witnesses behind. They weren't witnesses. They called out for their parents, then locked themselves in a room. They had no chance to see anyone behind a locked door. Charlie told the detective that when he and Charles were satisfied that Aaron's parents were, in fact, dead, Charles instructed him to go get the kids because, quote, little ones talk. Charlie had balked at killing kids, and Charles in return had threatened to leave. So Charlie went upstairs and insisted the boys come out of Aaron's room and go to their beds. He told investigators that they were scared and he couldn't stand to look at their faces. Bubba tried to put up a fight by kicking Charlie, and when he did, Charles shot Bubba in the face and he fell to the floor and did not move again. Up until then, Charlie had talked about the night's events with a stoic detachment, but he broke down as he talked about how Charles had come upstairs and stabbed eight-year-old Tyler. He told investigators that he couldn't do it himself, that he didn't see why Tyler had to die. At the same time, Charlie said he thought he had also stabbed Tyler at least once. You hear the insanity of this. I shot one child in the face. I just can't bring myself to stab the other one. Oh, wait a minute. I did stab him once, but it was just once. The immaturity, the insanity, the lack of empathy with these two is hard to describe. After the killing spree, Charlie told detectives that he carried a suitcase of Aaron's belongings, which he had previously packed out to the car, that she seemed happy. She smiled and said, I'm glad it's over. Again, a complete lack of empathy. At this point, two people have just walked out of the house and you are fully 
believing and aware that the people that brought you into this world, raised you, held you when you were sick, fed you, the brothers that you played with that would sit in your lap and watch a movie, would come to you and talk and just live together all these years. Somebody has just gone in and shot and hacked them to death, and they come out and you're smiling, and you say, well, I'm glad it's over. So then Charlie and Charles went back inside to rob the Caffies. Their take, $375 and some change, and a few pieces of jewelry. $375. It's $93.75 a life. They thought they'd killed four. Less than $100 for life. Quite a haul. After that, the two used their pocket lighters to set fire to furniture and clothes and bed sheets. Charlie said that as they hurried down the gravel road away from the Caffey's house, they could see it was burning. The four then drove back roads for a while to blow off steam. Then later that night, Charles had dropped him and Aaron off at the trailer where they had sex to celebrate. You heard me right, to celebrate. Remember when the officers went to search the trailer, they found a recently used condom? There's your celebration. Aaron was still not talking to authorities, but Assistant Attorney General Lisa Tanner met with Terry. It was awful. It was the hardest meeting I have ever, ever had as a prosecutor. The fact that these kids were all so brutal and so um, premeditated, that they were just so cavalier about human life, and that they were just so stupid about going about this. At the time, this was the most disturbing case I had ever seen. Although Charles took the longest to confess, once he did admit to his crimes, he provided the most help in locating discarded evidence. The next day he came back and wanted to come clean-er, I suppose, and he then led the investigators out to the creek where the sword was, where the one lockbox was, where Aaron's suitcase was, and the boots were, the old, the bloody boots were in the box from the new boots stuffed underneath the bridge. Not only did Charles use the money he stole from the Caffey house to buy new boots, he was kind enough to keep the old bloody ones because he said if he got away with the crime, then he would, quote, have two pairs of boots. If that doesn't define for you the level of intellect here, I just really don't know what else to say. He did not discard bloody boot evidence because if he got away with it, he would have two pairs of boots. All four defendants were initially charged with three counts of capital murder, although Aaron, being a juvenile, could not receive the death penalty. It's important that you know a little background about capital murder. It's considered one of the most serious crimes someone can commit. The state of Texas recognizes four classes of homicide, capital murder, murder, manslaughter, and criminally negligent homicide. 
Texas does not recognize degrees of murder such as first or second degree, as most people are familiar with. The only difference between capital murder and murder in Texas is the punishment imposed for each. Capital murder is punished with either a life sentence without parole or the death penalty, while murder is punished with a prison term of 5 to 99 years or life in prison. To convict a defendant of capital murder, prosecutors must be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant intentionally and knowingly caused the death of another person, that the defendant intended to cause serious bodily injury and committed an act that was clearly dangerous to human life, and this act caused the death of an individual, or that the defendant committed or attempted to commit a felony and in performing that felony committed an act that was clearly dangerous to human life, and this act caused the death of an individual. This was not a hard call. Prosecutors sometimes frustrate victims' families because they move very slowly. Victims' families want people charged, brought to trial, convicted, and sent to prison, and they want it done yesterday. And I 100% understand that. But prosecutors also know they get one bite at the apple, and they move cautiously and carefully because if they fumble something, if they take someone to trial too early, if evidence is disallowed because of some procedural problem, if there's been a problem with chain of evidence and something gets disallowed that's necessary for the conviction, if they make a mistake, they don't get a second chance. If that person gets acquitted, they walk. And when they get convicted, they're going away for a long, long time. So prosecutors move very carefully, very methodically, very purposely. And they seldom bring this kind of a case unless they are dead sure they can win it. In this case, prosecutors looked at this. This was a layup. The more deputies investigated, the more people came forward, and the guiltier Aaron looked. These people were confessing to what they had done, that is, all but Aaron, and the three co-conspirators were all telling the same story. Not so pat that it looked like it was pre-planned, but they were just telling very consistent stories, and she was changing hers like people change shirts. One fellow church member of Aaron's told investigators that around Thanksgiving, Aaron talked about hiring someone to kill her parents. Another church member said that Charlie told her he had a girlfriend he wanted to marry, but her parents didn't like him. He said that he guessed he would kill them. Even classmates heard Aaron and Charles talking about killing her parents. Again... I hearken back to the emotional age, the immaturity, the lack of impulse control. What are we talking about here? Here's somebody that is getting ready to commit multiple murders, and they're walking around school talking about it. They're telling people they're going to do it before they do it, and then they go do it. I mean, come on. When you say, what kind of person will do this? I'm telling you, people that are not very sophisticated have a very compromised emotional age, poor impulse control, and a lack of empathy. Anyone with any degree of sophistication 
if they had decided they were going to kill somebody, first thing they would say is, do not breathe a word of this to anybody. Don't hint at it. Don't say it. Don't imply it. Don't infer it. Because if you ever say it, we can never do it. They were telling everybody. They just were not mature enough, did not have the foresight to think how this is going to affect things once it's done. With this mountain of overwhelming evidence piling up, Erin continued to remain silent. Then on Father's Day, she wrote Terry a heartfelt letter from jail. I spoke with Terry about that letter. In the letter that she wrote, she says, none of this was your fault. If anything, it was mine. To me, that really sounds like an absence of both empathy and remorse. When you read that, did you think, yes, you're right, it it is your fault? Yeah, I mean, I was angry. I mean, there was times I wanted to go back there and grab her and just shake her. Why? It makes sense that Terry's reaction was angry. I mean, seriously? None of this was your fault? If anything, it was mine? Really? If anything, it was mine? Obviously, she's still not owning this, and this is infuriating to him. Among other things, Aaron also wrote in her Father's Day letter, and I quote, I never wanted any of this to happen. I was just going with what he was telling me. He was feeding me all these lies. I got caught up in him, and I feel so guilty. Even though this has happened, I still feel sad. But at the same time, I'm glad that I'm free from the pressure that was being put on me. As I read that letter originally, I had to put it down and walk away and come back and read it. Because it's not just the lack of empathy. It is the abject arrogance of what is being said. At the same time, glad that I'm free from the pressure that was being put on me. I'm free from the pressure. And my ticket out, the price of a ticket out, was you being shot multiple times, my mother being hacked to death, and my two brothers being brutally murdered. So I didn't feel pressure. It's just almost hard to wrap your mind around that. She has had time now to weigh the gravity of what's happened. She's away from him. She's not being influenced by him or him by her. She's had an opportunity to sit down and say, Oh my God, what have I done? What have I allowed? What has gone on here? And even after all that time to reflect, she says, Well, I hate it. At the same time, glad. Hard to imagine. Shortly after Father's Day, Aaron was certified to stand trial as an adult. That meant she faced the same punishment at trial as an adult, including life without parole. The one notable exception to that, even when certified an adult, a juvenile cannot receive the death penalty. Lisa Tanner, the lead prosecutor, met with Terry to lay out the case for him because what Charlie Charles and Bobby reveal in their jailhouse confessions will soon turn Aaron's story upside down. As for Aaron herself, 
She was never interviewed by police. She was never cross-examined by a prosecutor. And she has never really been questioned about her role in the murder of her family. But for the first time since that dreadful night, you are going to hear from Erin. You're going to hear what she has to say in her own words. Because I traveled to Texas. I went to her prison and conducted an exclusive interview. And I was the first person to finally get to ask her the tough questions. What really happened that night? What exactly was your involvement? Did you really intend for your entire family to be killed? And if so, why? But the biggest question, will Aaron finally come clean and tell the truth? Well, you're about to find out. Because you're going to get that and more in Episode 3 of A Family Slaughtered for Teen Love. Mystery and Murder. Analysis by Dr. Phil.